There was a uh, there was a man who had grown weary of the daily bombardment of attractive people telling him that he couldn't be happy unless he owned the product they were selling or adopted the lifestyle they were pursuing. He could no longer tolerate the twisted influence of the media. He was exhausted with the enticements to sin. And he couldn't cope with the constant pressure to keep up with everyone else around him. He was done with the world. So he decided to get away from it all. And joined a mute monastery. It was a very demanding commitment. Monks could only say two words every five years. For the first 15 years, monks were on trial. And if they were successful in meeting the requirements of the monastery during this 15-year trial period, they could then take their final vows. Perfect, the man thought. This is exactly what I need. So he joined. And for the first five years, he didn't say a word. At the end of that time, he was called into his superior's office where he was told he could say just two words. Bad food. He complained. Thank you. I'll take note of that observation, his superior said. The man went back to his duties, and for another five years didn't utter a word. At the end of that time, his superior asked him if he had anything he would like to say in two words. The man responded, hard bed. For another five years, he said not a word. His superior called him in and asked him if he had anything to say and if he was ready to take his final vows. The man stood up and said, I quit. His superior replied, Well, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain since you've been here. 
this man was trying to counter the lure of the world and thought that a monastery was the way to go. And in all seriousness, it might surprise you that at one time it was thought that if you were a die-hard Christian and really wanted to love God and avoid the tug of this world, you had to withdraw yourself from society and live in isolation as a monk or a nun in some desolate place. Obviously, this approach and other approaches like it have two problems. The first problem is we have a nasty habit of bringing the world with us. And secondly, Jesus intended for us to be in the world, just not of the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off from last week. Starting with verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In his previous words, And again, I need to remind you that he is writing to Christians here. Okay? He's writing to believers. John told them and us that we are to love God as reflected in our obedience to Him and we are to love God's people. If you really want to know that you really know God, look there for the evidence. Love God and love God's people. That sounds clear. It's pretty straightforward. But here, John suggests that our love can be misdirected misdirected towards the world and the things in it. And John knows this to be true, for he's in the world too. So he says to these believers, these Christians, you must stop loving the world. That word world seems to be a favorite word of John. In fact, he uses it more than all other New Testament writers combined. And before we can understand what John is saying to us, we first have to define what that word world actually means. In the Greek, 
The word world is cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. Which literally means order. Or arrangement. And we get several English words from this Greek word, cosmos. To include words like cosmos, with a C. Referring to a well-organized or well-ordered universe. And we also get the word cosmetics. Which apparently suggests that applying makeup is an attempt to bring order to things. It's the Greek. Don't, don't, don't. Now, regards to John's use of the word world, it has several different meanings depending on its context. For example, it can be used to refer to God's ordered creation. Our physical world, with its nature and its landscape of of mountains and fields and, and various bodies of water. Is John telling us that we should not love God's creation? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. We can love God's creation in the sense that we recognize and enjoy its beauty and give God the glory for it. Another use of the word world speaks of humanity. Humanity. Is John suggesting that we should not love humanity, our fellow man? Well, to suggest, to suggest that would strike at the very heart of the gospel. Since we are told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. He loves humanity. So much so that He sent His Son to redeem it. So then what is John telling us? What world are we not to love. In this context, the world refers to an organized system of values and viewpoints and attitudes that are hostile towards God. At its core, it's a spiritual system a deceptive perspective dominated by Satan to influence our physical realm. It's a system that has no room for God. It rejects the truth found in His Word. It relishes what God calls sin. And it has no regard for God's people. That's the world that John is speaking of. It's a worldwide system that we live in which we cannot love. Yes, we can enjoy God's creation. And yes, we are to love people. 
That's why God left us in the world. But we can't have the world living in us. As Christians, we cannot give our affection and our devotion to this sinful, human-centered, corrupt, deceptive, and self-gratifying system called the world. Even though others around us may freely and openly embrace it. John's command is, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And then he tells us why. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, the reason we shouldn't love the world is that we can't love the world and God at the same time. We cannot love two things which are in direct and total opposition to one another. Misdirected love for the world pushes out our love for God. And our love for God pushes out our love for the world. As a ruling principle of life, those who are devoted to the world, regardless of what they say, John says, cannot love God. This is similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when he said, No one can serve two masters. <clears throat> For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. In that context, Jesus was talking about wealth. But it is just as applicable to the world as well. God, not the world, must have first place in a Christian's life. And if someone claims to love God, and yet their lifestyle resembles the sinful values and viewpoints and principles of this world, there is something wrong with their claim to love God. And if you notice, both Jesus and John make it very clear. It's either or. You can't have a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. You can't have it both ways. <clears throat> There's an interesting method used by hunters in Africa to catch monkeys. They slice a coconut in two. Hollow it out. <clears throat> and in one half of the shell, they will cut a hole just big enough for a monkey to pass their hand through. Then they place an orange in the other half of the coconut before fastening the two halves together. 
Finally, they secure the coconut to a tree with a rope. They retreat into the jungle and they wait. Sooner or later, an unsuspecting monkey swings by, smells the orange, and discovers its location inside the coconut shell. The monkey then easily slips his hand through the small hole, takes hold of the orange, and tries to pull it through the hole. Of course, the orange won't come out. It's too big for the hole. But to no avail, the persistent monkey continues to pull and pull, never realizing the danger that it is in. While the monkey struggles with the orange, the hunters simply stroll in and throw a net over the monkey. As long as the monkey keeps his fist wrapped around the orange, the monkey is trapped. The crazy thing is, the monkey could save its life if it would just let go of the orange. But it rarely does. Thinking it can have it both ways. It can have the orange and its freedom at the same time. But it can't. And the orange becomes a deadly trap. Satan uses a similar method to lure many Christians. He tempts us to grasp more and more of the things of the world setting the trap whereby we love God less and less. So what does this trap look like? Well, John describes it in verse 16. And he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In this verse, John explains why the misdirected love of the world will displace the love of God, and he provides three general temptations experienced by us. That being the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are the oranges in the trap. These are the oranges. These are the lures used by Satan since the Garden of Eden. Even attempted against Jesus in the wilderness. And they are still being effectively used even today against the lost and against Christians. So what does John mean by the lust of the flesh? Well, to answer that, we first have to understand what this word Flesh means. And right off the bat, I can tell you he is not talking about 
our physical body. Okay? The Greek word is sarex. And in this context, it focuses on our fallen nature. Our fallen nature. And it speaks of our tendency to take the normal desires that God has given us and to distort them and pervert them in a way that is opposed to the will of God. And let me explain. God created us with many natural desires that are legitimate. They are legitimate desires if they are used in a way that God designed them. For example, we have a desire to eat. And we have a desire to rest. These are legitimate, God-given desires. But we can distort and pervert them to indulge our fallen nature. And when we give in to our fallen nature, eating turns into gluttony. And rest turns into laziness. The Apostle Paul spoke about the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 beginning with verse 19. And he gets a little more specific about it. He writes, Now the deeds, deeds are things you do. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, Witchcraft, and just so you know there, depending on your translation, it might say witchcraft or sorcery. Either way, the Greek word for that is pharmakia. That's where we that's the root word for pharmacy. So witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions. Factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list by any stretch of the means. It's only a sampling. Okay? It's a sampling of what it looks like to give into the cravings of our fallen nature. Doing those things, doing those deeds which are opposed to the will of God. As Christians, can we get tempted by the lust of the flesh? Absolutely. There may be occasions where we backslide into these behaviors. 
But for those who live like this habitually and continually as a normal practice and a walk of life, then they can know they really do not know God. They do not love Him. Then we come to the lust of the eyes, which I think is ramped up in these days and times. And that refers to anything that we see or visualize, which entices us to want something that we do not have. It's seen in greed and in envy and in sexual lust. We may be perfectly content with what we have, but then we see what somebody else has, and suddenly our house, our car, our spouse, our job, our clothes, our church isn't enough anymore. No longer content. We got to have what we don't have. And this is why so many are drowning in debt today. Eve fell prey to this temptation. Seeing the fruit of the forbidden tree was good for food and a delight to her eyes. She had to have what she could not have. Achan gave into this when he saw the gold and the silver that had been dedicated to the Lord. But he wanted it for himself and he took it so he could have it. Jesus warned us about the lust of the eyes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, he said, You have heard that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, we are creatures of sight. We are stimulated visually. And we must especially be on guard with this one. Remember, it was King David. It was King David's eyes that led him to commit adultery with Bathsheba and eventually murder her husband. It all started with his wandering eyes that allowed a sinful desire to enter in and take root. One test to know if you are struggling with the lust of the eyes is to ask yourself what you enjoy looking at. Because what your eyes fixate on is what you end up wanting. Which is why Job said 
In Job chapter 31, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So the lust of the flesh is a desire to do what you should not do. Whereas the lust of the eyes is a desire to have what you do not or should not have. Then last but not least is the boastful pride of life. The desire to be something apart from the will of God. Now this one is different. This one is different. Because it pertains to what we already have. And we seek to be lifted up because we have it. The pride of life speaks of the person who seeks glory for themselves rather than glory for God. They boast of their power and their possessions and their prestige and their position in life. They operate purely from a self-centered level, seeking status and honor and praise, making themselves look greater than they really are, typically at the cost of tearing someone else down. John says, none of this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, nor the pride of life comes from God. God is not the source. The world system dominated by Satan is the source. Then John concludes his argument with verse 17, where he says, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. I like the comments of John MacArthur on this passage. He says, Some of you are saying, I can't wait until the next election. He continues. I got news for you. It's not going to be any different. It's still the same world. Rotten to the core, from top to bottom, side to side, front to back. It's rotten. And it's all passing away. The system is disintegrating. It's falling apart. It carries its own destruction. And for those whose love is devoted to this world, they have placed their confidence in something that cannot and will not last. 
There's nothing to hold on to here. And for the Christian, why would we want to? Remember, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through. And for those who continue to do the will of God to those who persevere in this world, we are told their final destiny is to abide, is to abide with God forever, which is the definition of eternal life. So John's warning to the Christians is clear. Stop loving the world. That's his command. Because of what the world is. Because of what it does. And because of who we are. We are children of God. Now there are several approaches to this passage. And sometimes it's taken to the extreme, like our guy who joined the mute monastery to get away from it all. There are those who say they can't own a television, they can't have a computer or an iPhone. They can't go to movies. They can't dress up. They can't have a nice car or a nice home. And they must stay away from all lost people. All to keep them from having any connection to this world. Is that really what God wants? Absolutely not. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Or said in another way, God's will for us is not to be isolated, but rather to be insulated. We are to be salt and light. We are to bear witness for Christ in this world and we cannot do that if we avoid all aspects of life in this world. God has placed us in this world to minister and He expects us to use the things of this world properly according to His design and for His glory. But we have to be careful We can't flirt with this world, and we must stay on task. A man bought a new hunting dog. Eager to see how the dog would perform, the man took him out to track a bear. No sooner than they had gotten to the woods than the dog picked up the trail. Suddenly he stopped, sniffed the ground, and headed in a new direction. He caught the scent of a deer that had crossed the bear's path. A few moments later, he halted again, this time smelling a rabbit that had crossed the path of the deer. On and on it went until finally the breathless hunter caught up with his dog, not only to find him, only to find him barking triumphantly down the hole of a field mouse. 
sometimes Christians are like that hunting dog. We start out on the right trail. Following Christ. But soon our attention is diverted to things of lesser importance. One pursuit leads to another until we have strayed completely off of course. Off our original task. Every day, we must renew our dedication to Christ or we can be drawn away from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We can easily pick up another scent and follow another trail if we are not careful. And if that happens, we have already been told we are to admit our waywardness to God. We are to accept His forgiveness and then we are to ask Him to put us back on the trail. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You that this Word was straight and to the point. As followers of Christ, we are to stop loving this world. Father, help us to stay on task. Help us to follow You and not get distracted and diverted to other things, to these things of the world, these things that are passing away. Give us a passion for You. Help us to focus on You. And may You be honored and glorified in us. I thank You for who You are and what you do, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about the love of God this morning for us. He loves us dearly, does He not? It's a crazy love. I can't even explain it quite frankly. He loves us dearly. And because He loves us, John tells us we can love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Right? If we love God, then doesn't it make sense that we would love what He loves? That makes sense, doesn't it? If we love God, we will love what He loves. How can we love this system, this worldly system that is directly opposed to God? We can't. It's either or. Either we love Him or we love the world. There's no, there's no in-between. There's no gray. There's no riding the fence. That option was not there.
We love God because He loved us. He sent His Son to die for us. We have a heavenly home waiting for us. One day we are told all of this. The physical world and everything else will be dissolved, melted. And then what? God creates a brand new heaven and earth. Brand new. And we will get to be there. That's how much He loves us. This is passing away. All of it is passing away. He loves us so much. He has created this for us. And we should love Him. And if we love Him, we cannot love this system that is opposed to Him. It doesn't make any sense. He loves you. And because He loves you, we can respond to Him with confidence and boldness. And because He loves us, we can obey Him. Maybe you're here this morning and He's calling you. Come to me. I love you. I want a relationship with you. If He's calling you, respond to Him. I would love to introduce you to Him. The one true God. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Or maybe there's something else. Maybe you realize you're loving the world more than you're loving God. Whatever the case may be, I just ask that you'd respond to Him. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, let me uh, close us in prayer. I'll pray for our offering. And just, uh, just a reminder that our baskets are in the back near the door. We appreciate your gifts and offerings. And also, I want to pray for our, our fellowship afterwards. And uh, you know, I hope you, you stay for that. Father, I thank you so much for bringing us here today. I thank you that you love us more than we could ever understand, more than we could ever know. I thank you for Jesus who died for us. I thank you for our heavenly inheritance. I thank you, Lord God, for a new home. I thank you, Lord God, that we have a, a, new, a, a new home to look forward to. And we're just passing through here. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to give back to you what you've, you've so freely given to us. Father, as we give our tithes and offerings this morning, Lord, I pray that you would, you would bless the gift and bless the giver. And Father, help us to, as a church to use your money wisely. And then, Father, for our fellowship, I pray that it would just be a, a sweet and meaningful uh, fellowship with one another where real connections are made. Father, bless the food to our bodies. Bless those, Lord God, who have brought it and prepared uh, it for us. And Lord, again, I just thank you so much for this time together. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.